Devin. I'm an addict alcoholic. Hi. Um, so the guy that's coming to speak tonight, uh, I met when I first moved to Austin, and uh, I had just gotten out of treatment, and I started working <coughs> at the treatment center. Um, and I have always like struggled with making connections, especially with guys. Um, my whole life, it was like really easy for me to manipulate and to get through. You know, like I just didn't have authentic connections with people. Um, I was always just trying to get mine. And um, when I met this person, it was like I automatically knew he was a safe place, and I automatically knew that he. Um, I'm gonna cry. Um, that. You know, he loved me uh, with his whole heart, and I didn't even have to do anything, um, which is something that's very rare in my, in my life, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, and anytime I've gone through any struggles, you know, he's one of the first people I call because I know he's either going to call me out on my shit or he's going to love me until I can love myself again. Um, he is a fine specimen of a man, and... <laughs> Um, you know, I quoted the big book. Um, sorry. Um, but, yeah, he is someone that I can say is my best friend and really mean that. And I know that no matter what, he's going to love me. And I see him working with people all the time. And he, you know, is a perfect representation of what working a 12-step program looks like. And I'm very honored that God put him in my life. So, without. <laughs> Thank you, Devin. Hello, everybody. My name is Dylan. I'm a grateful drug addict and alcoholic. Um, I just want to let you guys know that I'm very grateful tonight to be here. And, um, man, I'm trying to think back to, like, the last time I was in this room. Probably when I was back in treatment. Um... So my sobriety date is September 19th of 2015. Um, and it feels like I've, I just got sober. Um, it's crazy how like life goes by still really fast as I've been gifted the opportunity to like live life in the now. And that is a very foreign object to me and to a lot of other brothers and sisters that I know in this program that are either still dealing with alcohol, alcoholism and drug addiction. Um, so I'm going to start off with just like the basics for me, man, like spiritual malady. I'm going to touch on the spiritual malady, mental obsession, and the physical allergy. And it's going to probably translate into something like what it used to look like, what happened, and what it looks like now. Um, so I just want to reiterate how grateful I am to be here because last time I wasn't here, I was in treatment sharing. And it's just like another gift finally. Um, so I remember when I was six years old, I always struggled like having conversations with people when they would say like I remember when I was two years old this happened to me I remember when I was four years old this happened to me I, I couldn't relate to that all I can remember is when something happened when I was six years old and um, I remember catching my mom and my dad having sex <laughs> and uh, like for like vividly like 100% and uh, like a month later they get divorced you know and I was like I was hit with abandonment and the fear of like them uh, doing this to me and at six years old just pure maladjustment you know maladjustment <clears throat> from life and that was it um i've had a i had a great life man as a kid growing up from six years old uh, my mom and my dad were like 
the ideal parents. And I had a little brother and we had a very, very sufficient life. Like I never went without anything. I always had people in my life that loved me, did for me what I couldn't do for myself at the time. Uh, my father had me in sports. I played soccer, ran track, played hockey, football, you know, and those were things that I really loved to do and was good at. Um, and it's just weird, like, from where you'll hear, like, how great life started off for me to where the spiritual malady took over and then I formed a mental obsession and just completely fucked my whole life up. Um, my mom, she's just, like, the ideal version of what I want to be in life. She's so smart and independent and has, like, the strongest will I've ever met in the world, and I look up to her throughout my whole life. Um, and I was always trying to be like her, but then there's my father on the other hand, who, who is like an ideal man that I want to live up to be. And he was that for, I'd say about until I was about 13. Um, I'm born and raised in Austin, Texas. I'm only 25 years old. Um, I got sober when I was 22, but, uh, I was born and raised in Austin when I was six years old, me and my mom and my dad and my little brother, we all moved to North Carolina. Um, so transplanted up there, formed a whole new life with all kinds of new kids that lived across the street around me. Um, these kids made me feel whole. I remember there was another kid named Dylan and we called him big Dylan. I was little <coughs> Dylan and, uh, like he was cool as shit, but, um, like having a solid connection with other people <coughs> that were older than me and unlocked me into like cooler things, I would say made me feel a little bit cooler um skateboarding was big in my life um i was like the only kid that really played hockey that was around that shit was cool but um what's it called uh learning to like live up to what these kids expected of me and they were older made me feel worthy um i remember we lived there from six until i was about 13 years old and then my mom got a new job offer to come back to austin and when that happened um, I can remember, dude, like just the fear of having to meet new people again and have new friends and be part of a whole new group and just get like reconnected with like my family that's already here and I'm already 13 years old and I'm like, I don't know how the hell I'm going to do this. Um, so I remember going, I joined, uh, I guess it was seventh grade and I started playing football in Austin. I went to Bailey Middle School and... Um, you know, like I was, I was hanging out with all the nerdy kids for a while. And then as I started to get noticed playing sports, I was starting to hang out with like the jocks and then the preps. I remember my mother would take me to like Abercrombie and Fitch. And I had like, I had the whole thing, dude, like the cute little shirts and the fucking Sperry's, you know, like I fit right in, man. And then like the days that I didn't want to look like that, I could skate and like put on like my, uh, I had like a pair of, um, S's and then I wear like my Volcom shorts and like my Hurley shirts, you know, like, yo, I can blend in, dude. Um, and I fit right in, man. Like everywhere I went, like I blended right in and like most of the kids accepted me for who I thought I was. Um, this identity of like the happy-go-lucky kid who's always doing well in all respects of life at that time. And like I was doing all right in school. I was making good grades. I was maintaining like a B average. Um, killing it in sports eighth grade came around and then i finally got like placed in like the i guess um the better version of football instead of like the second class it was the first class i forget what they call it but i was like with the coolest kids that were in eighth grade and i was like fuck yeah I'm making it 
you know, and then I like, I remember, I remember this in eighth grade, there was a, I don't know if it was, I think it was Grey's Anatomy or whatever the hell that other show is that called the guy Mc, McDreamy, yeah, and I remember in eighth grade they called me McSteamy, you know, and that like stroked my ego so great that I was like, word, I'm down with this, um, and then I got the girl that I thought I needed to be okay, and like we lasted for like two years, but um, so freshman year comes around, I didn't do any drugs until I was about 15. So right after freshman year, so, or I guess summer leading up into sophomore year, um, that girl ended up breaking up with me. And I remember like crying to my mom, like, why would she do this to me? I guess it's like not nice. I don't know why somebody would like, break my heart, you know? And then she like got with like my best friend. They're married today and it's fucking great. You know, crazy. Um, it's funny as shit actually. But uh, anyways... So, I don't know what the feeling was, but it wasn't, I wasn't okay. And I remember my mom would keep like a bunch of alcohol in the pantry. And my mom was living with this, I was living with my mom, but she was married to this man who was making great money. Stepfather, I guess you can call him. Um, I never respected another man in my life unless it was my father, but my father was never around. Um, always keeping this ideal as to like that's who he's that's who he is. I need to maintain that, and nobody else besides him is going to be my father. Um, this man had great money. We were living out in Circle C. We had a big ass house, and I had a balcony. And my mom would keep a bunch of alcohol in her pantry, and I remember sneaking downstairs to like steal her alcohol to drop off the balcony to my buddy and he would throw me up like 40 bucks you know that's a great deal i don't know what i would spend the money on but like um later on it it transferred into like i guess that summer i started smoking weed i remember the first time i smoked weed with my friends they were smoking it out of a coke can with a tinfoil on it and like i was trying my best to like get an effect produced to just be part of the group and, like, I didn't get high at all. I, I remember it specifically. And I remember waking up the next morning, like, I, f- I think I tricked myself into feeling different. You know, like, I did something wrong last night and it felt good. And um, that made I remember sitting in my room just feeling like something feels different. And I don't know what it is, but I want to find out another way how to feel different. Um, so I then finally, like, I, I, I snuck in and found a way to get a hold of a, um, some weed, and I started buying weed. I remember I, I spent $60 on my first ounce of weed, and it was like a bag of swag, and it was a whole ounce, but I was like, damn, this is a lot of weed, dude. Um, and I found out like what the difference was as to like what I was really smoking, and I was like, dude, this is not doing anything. Um, my little brother broke his arm. Me and him were, we were going to smoke weed. And we were riding our bikes down a little hill. I felt like such an asshole because I'm getting my little brother to come smoke weed with me. He's only like 13. He's never even smoked weed before. And uh, he falls off his bike and breaks his arm. I'm like, oh, fuck. And my mom's on the way, so I got to, like, throw the weed and, like, hide the shit. And I'm like, I don't know what he did, Mom. He just fell off his bike. But um, he couldn't ever take pills. So they ended up giving him liquid hydrocodone. And um, I, like, Googled the shit, figured out what it was got tapped into that and was like man this is it um i'm not one of those people that's like oh the first time i did this it was like love at first whatever like i didn't care what it was as long as it changed the way that i feel like i am down with it um 
but I remember that one was profound because it gave me a sense of like warmth and comfort and um, I mean, the big book talks about me just like a sense of ease and comfort and that's all I felt like I needed was a sense of ease and comfort due to like whatever maladjustment I had in life um, so going into sophomore year I then turned out to be like the bad boy who made sure that like the girls recognized me for the bad things that I was doing but not consciously um, and uh, it was cool hearing my name go around like I was the bad boy and then, like, next thing you know, I'm getting pulled out of class because I tried selling this kid some weed, and he called 499 tips on me. And then <laughs> they fucking pulled me out of class and, like, holding out my backpack. And everybody's against the lockers, and I'm standing there, and this one kid steps forward like he was going to take the fall from my backpack. And I was like, go for it, dude. Like, he did it, <laughs> you know? And they were like, panic, come here, because I had my last name on my backpack, so I wasn't really getting out of this one. Um... <laughs> But I remember getting handcuffed in front of everybody, and I was like, dude, what are you doing with your life right now, buddy? Um, then my mom had to come up to school and, like, sit down with me in front of the cops, and then they took me to downtown Juvie and sat there for, like, a couple hours, and my father came and picked me up. Um, but I guess to, like, touch on this, my father, I guess you could say, is, like, a marijuana addict. The guy smokes weed. Like, like I shoot heroin and drink alcohol and eat Xanax. Um, so for me to fit in with my father, the only way I felt comfortable was smoking weed with the guy, buying weed with the guy, doing the same type of work that he did. Um, he was an apartment maintenance manager and knew how to fix shit. And I felt like as a man in life, like you got to learn how to fix things um, to like survive and be, I guess, a man. Um, not the truth at all. But... uh so I remember my father having to come and pick me up and like, he didn't even say anything. Like there was nothing wrong with what I did. It's just like, don't do that at school. I was like, I can get down with that. So I was on probation for like a month and they told me I had to like write a paper and give them canned goods to get off of probation. So I was like, I can do that. <laughs> Easy peasy. Um, it gets relatively intense after sophomore year so sophomore year i didn't do much man I, I went to school but i didn't do great in in school at all like i failed pretty much every class and i remember the i got like pulled in to talk to like one of the teachers or counselors i don't know who it was but she was like you're either gonna have to repeat sophomore year or you're gonna have to go to another school um and then this is where the fear of not being good enough fear of judgment fear of inadequacy fear of abandonment like i'm abandoning my friends i'm not being abandoned now um and just fear of change so i was like well i guess i'm gonna go to a different school so that also took away sports for me um i was playing football ran track um played soccer if i would have stayed at that school i would have got a soccer scholarship but that wasn't a sufficient enough force to do any good for me at all whatsoever. Um, so I dropped out sophomore year and went to this alternative school downtown off of MLK called Garza. And it's self-paced. So I thought I was going to get there and graduate when I was 17. And I get there, I start, you know, meshing in with these kids. There's only like 300 kids compared to 3,000. So I was like, that's, I'm cool with that. I can mingle in this group a little bit better, I thought. Um, the only way I could really mingle with these kids is like doing what they did. And like, there's no sports there. There's literally only just like artsy stuff and school and then drugs. So, um, being a part of the school, I was like, 
Actually, me and my best friend dropped out sophomore year and went to Garza. Um, and it was weird how it worked. Like, we had the same relationships that we did with our mothers and fathers. So, like, me and him really clicked on that. We both smoked weed the same. We both did life the same. We both were cool with going somewhere else and trying something different. So we did that. And um, I got there, and it was just, like, an ecstasy-filled, <coughs> Xanax-filled, Oxycontin-filled, anything I really wanted drug-wise school um and it was very easy to get like all these kids lived right around me i didn't even know and so next thing you know like i'm the only kid who really was i guess more well off to be put in a position to have a car at 16 years old and be able to drive these kids to school and use that as like a, a little bit of leverage to like take them to school so i could get some xanax for free from them. um so I remember I was like 17. I made it there a whole year, and I was supposed to have already graduated. And they came and like brought some shit to me and like Dylan, it's gonna take you 985 days to graduate. I'm like, I'm gonna be 20 by then. I'm not doing this. Um, so I dropped out and got my GED. Um, got my foot in the door at some technical support representative company at 17 years old. <laughs> And uh, I had it made, dude. I was working from home, making like thirteen fifty an hour for my first job at 17, just talking to people over the phone. Um, and they gave me like a little bit of funds. I was, making, I was working full time, making decent money. My best friend got me the job who dropped out of cars <coughs> as well. Um, so I guess we could go from there to... I found opiates when I was about 15 um, with my little brother getting the hydrocodone, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'd say when I was 17, my, one of my best friend's friend, his mom got in a really bad car accident and she was going to prescribe all these fentanyl patches every single month. And um, he came over one night and he was like, bro, you got to try these things. And I was like, what is this? And I just was about to try it because they're doing it. He's doing it. I'm like, okay, let's see what it's about. Um, so I start smoking these patches with them on tinfoil, and the next thing you know, I'm like, the effect produced by this is much greater than anything I've ever put in my body, so what do I need to do to get more of these? Um, got more of them. I remember, like, smoking two of them in one night and then waking up the next morning, like, the whole top left part of my head and my whole left arm is numb for two weeks. And that, that didn't phase me. I was like, okay, you probably should tell your mom and uh, <laughs> what is she going to say? I don't know, but I didn't. The day I was going to tell her, the feeling came back. It was fucking weird. Um, and so that, like, began a whole new rush in my life that I think I needed to, I guess, suit the maladjusted-type life that I was already living. Um, I could touch on some, like, mental obsession shit. I remember... Remember, I was still playing soccer at the time, but it wasn't four schools for um, a league. And um, I got into a concussion. I was laying down on the couch at my mom's house, and I didn't have anything. I didn't have any weed. I didn't have any alcohol. I didn't have any pills, nothing. Um, the mental obsession was so strong that I came up with this extreme excuse. And I only tell a couple of people about this. But um, I was laying down on my couch, and I, most people can feel like the back of their head, and they have like a little bump. Right, like that's my skull. 
Um, I told my mom I have a giant knot in the back of my head and I need to go to the hospital right now because I have the worst migraine in my life. I can't stand, I can't walk, I can't see straight. Um, so she rushed me to the emergency room. They ended up putting me in the back and I ended up getting pumped with like Dilaudid and all this other shit. And it was like, like I remember a month later getting the bill and my mom was like, Dylan, it was like $6,000. I'm like, wow, you're a piece of shit, dude. But like, I accept it because I'm like, oh, well, I'm sorry. Like, I'm not doing that one again. Um, but like, that was, that was when I was 17. Um, it gets much deeper as life continues. Um, then it became like more or less like, what am I gonna do now, right? Like I was, I was okay with just working, having a couple of friends around, but the truth was, it's like none of those people mattered in my life. My mom didn't matter, my grandma didn't matter, my dad didn't matter. The only thing that ended up mattering was what I was using to feel okay. Um, so, long story short, found heroin. My best friend and I, um, we used to only do it once in a blue moon. We'd shoot heroin, and that was it. Like Once in a blue moon, we were 18 years old, and um, I progressed from once in a blue moon. I was doing about four or five times a day. And, um, so me and him were in this thing to where we would spend like $10 each on it. And me and him both go and buy $10 worth and we're watching the, it was when the Dallas Mavs and the, um, I think, yeah, the Cavaliers were playing the playoffs. Yeah. The heat. No, it was the heat. Yeah. Um, and I remember, Yeah. Yeah, eight, seven years ago when I was 18, <coughs> seven years ago, yep. And um, I remember sitting on the couch, and my best friend walks out of his bedroom into the living room, and it's me and two other guys, and he's like, I just want to let know, let you guys know that I love you guys to death, and you guys are my brothers, and if there's anybody else I would rather have here, it wouldn't matter because you guys, I love to death, and that's it. And I was like, I love you too. And, like, it was just like, feel like we were just saying it at that point in time because like we did love each other but we didn't really have that great of a relation um <coughs> so 18 years old i remember um he could never hit himself so i did it for him 30 minutes later he dies of respiratory arrest after i find him in the bathroom and at that point in time i'm like man there's no way in this world i'm ever going to be able to do this again right stuck with a needle in my arm two weeks later. Um, the big book talks about how it works, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. I believe at that point in time, like, this man is going to relieve my alcoholism and I'm not going to ever have to do this again. Um, sad story is, is, like, that's not the truth. The truth for me is, is, like, there is no power greater than myself, so I am going to use the only power that I have found, and that is drugs and alcohol. Um... So I remember my mom coming and picked me up from the apartment complex that night, and um, she was just, like, shocked. She was like, what are you fucking doing with your life, dude? I'm like, I don't know, Mom. She already knew what was going on. Um, and then a couple months go by, and I'm, I'm, like, found at a Randall's gas station off of Ben White. It was the first time I started shooting <coughs> Oxycontin, and I fell out and I pulled out into the back of a cop car, woke up in um, jail downtown going to get magistrated and like um Dylan you got a possession of controlled substance over 350 pounds and I was like holy shit what are you talking about 
Um, I had a needle and a spoon in my car, and that was it. Long story short, I was being watched by the DEA and Vice Squad, and I had no clue. Um, so at 18 years old, um, my uncle was my lawyer. He called me and was like, Dylan, I need you to come and talk to these people. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I go and talk to these people. and like, what can you help us find? I'm like, I can help you find some weed. <laughs> and they're like, we don't want that. <laughs> said, what do you want, man? I can help you find some Xanax. I'm like, dude, we don't want that either. And then they fucking laid it all in front of me, and they're like, bro, you're doing undercover. You're doing deals against the Texas Syndicate's ringleader of the heroin trade. I'm like, there's no fucking way. Um, and then they hit me with, like, my rap sheet by that time, man, I already had DUI. I already had a POCS. I already had a really <coughs> burglary charge. Um, like, my rap sheet was getting very long. And um, I can't even remember a lot of the shit that I was doing. I don't even remember what my charges were. But I do remember them saying, like, if you work with us, we will drop all of your charges and you'll be good to go, right? Um, and honestly, I did it in retaliation of the dope that was sold to me that killed my best friend. But truth was, is like I was already kind of put in a position to where I was really fucked. So I was like, all right, let's try this out, see how it goes. Um, and uh, this is where I'm going to touch on some more mental obsession piece. And um, I remember I was like 10 deals in with these people. And it wasn't like what you think of, man. It's not like they strap you up with a wire or none of that. They give me marked money, and I go and I do my thing. I'm just an innocent-ass white boy going to buy a gram and a half worth of heroin every day. Like, that's all I did. Um, so I felt very okay doing such a thing. Um, but truth be told, I was waking up every single morning with a heart attack. Literally, like, I could feel my heart about to explode just shit in my pants. I didn't know what to do. But I had to do that. Otherwise, I was going to jail. Um, so I remember they gave me $100 with marked money to go and buy some, some dope. And um, I remember he waited out in front of me. It was a Grammy even. And I was like, all right, this is the time I'm going to get him. The, the mental obsession is so strong because I haven't been able to use for when I'm doing deals against my dope man. So, like, I can't go and do what I want to do during the day. And um, I'm like, I'm going to get him. I've got to to be okay. Otherwise, like, I don't know what else I'm going to do. And I was just really kind of hopeless i guess you could say but didn't give a fuck what was going to happen um so i remember i broke off half of it stuck it underneath my i stuck it on top of like a little coat top underneath my seat and then they pulled me out and they searched me down like they always do before and after then they weigh it out and they're like yo bro where's the rest of it i'm like i have no idea what you're talking about um by this time in my life i was a fucking great liar i would lie to you dead in your face and feel nothing about it um, and this was the type of man that I, I built up to be after a while. I was like, I want to be this actor who can lie to you directly in your face and you will believe me. Because um, that's what I had to do to make ends meet and to be okay. Um, and so just lied to him dead in their face. Like, dude, I didn't touch it. I don't know what you're talking about. They're like, yo, we're going to go and search the car and bring the dogs out and you're going to get tampered with evidence. You're going to get blacklisted. You're going to go to prison for 20 years. I'm like, that's fine, dude. I'm telling you, there's nothing in my car. Long story short, I don't know what happened, but they went back to their car and they're like, if this ever happens again, kid, you're done. I'm like, that's fine. Nothing happened anyways, you know? Um, so I got away with that. And then um, everything ended up working out, man. I ended up finishing the deals with them. Um, ended up seeing them on the news like three months later. And I was like, wow, okay, that's done now. Now what do I do? You know, 
Um, it was fucking weird. But uh, there's always, like, a lot of prejudice in this deal around, like, snitching and, like, ratting on people and blah, blah, blah. I mean, like, dude, that's what I did because that's what I had to do at that point in time to survive. Um, you know, and, like, today the difference is, is, like, I don't really believe in snitching today. The truth for me is like just being blunt, honest with people, you know, and if I'm, if I'm being dishonest with people around me, it's not getting me anywhere. Um, and I'm not about to hold somebody's dope. So I tried the whole, uh, change of people, places and things. So by the time I was 19, I uh, got kicked out by my mother. Cause she was like, I'm not burying my son in my house. It's not happening. So you can go live in South Carolina with your father I was like, okay, time to make some differences, <coughs> Dylan. Like, let's fucking change your life around and do this right. Um, man, long story short, like, dude, it just there was there was no change in me at all. I got a different job, I was working at Sprint from 19 until about 20. I was making 48 dollars an hour. I was a fucking man at lying to people. Um, <laughs> to be a good salesman, I guess you have to lie. And I was fucking selling 130 cell phones a month at Sprint, you know, and I did a great job at it. But like, I was still stealing out of the cash register because I had to wait a month and a half to get my commission checks. Um, and I will never forget this. This man, Colin, called me from uh, loss prevention. And he, he was on the phone with my manager. And my manager, Kurt, was like the coolest fucking dude in the world. And he was like, Dylan. Colin's calling. He used to talk to you about something. I don't know what it is. I was like, cool, let me talk to him. And he hits me with, uh, dude, we got you on camera, stealing out of the cash register, and uh, you probably owe us some money. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're probably right. And <laughs> just straight up, dude. I ain't even going to try to sugarcoat it, bro. Um, but it fucked me up because right after he said that, he was like, do you have a problem with drugs and alcohol? I was like... Whoa. And I broke down crying and I don't cry. Like for me to cry is like a very foreign thing because that makes me feel. And for me to feel is just, it's like nothing. I can't do it. Um, and so he was like, Dylan, I'm a drug addict and alcoholic in recovery. And I'm letting you know that it's okay if you are. And it fucked me up. Cause I'm like, wow, this guy gets me. <laughs> and he's speaking through the phone to me and I'm like holy shit dude and it was funny how it worked cause like right across my kiosk there was like these massage chairs and I'm like sitting down on one of the massage chairs doing a massage while talking to the guy and like having my whole life like crumble in front of me um, and like I felt the truth there man I don't know why it took me you know fucking four and a half years to like understand but it, it made sense um i remember after that he was like so if you don't give us the they only got me for 120 dollars, which i was more than grateful for i was like cool beans um <laughs> i give that back to you right now i lost my job obviously but kurt was rather devastated he was like man what the hell happened because i give him 120 dollars after going to the ATM in the mall, and he was like, what happened, dude? I was like, I owe you $120, and I gotta leave. And he's like, damn, dude. So, um, um, we're gonna get into something more now in a little. Uh, 21, moved to Seattle with my mom. She moved from Austin to Seattle. Made it up there, because my father didn't want to live with me anymore, or I didn't want to live with him, I don't know. Um, made it there, and that was, that was rough. I moved from Austin because me and my father moved from South Carolina back to Austin. I was in Austin for like eight months from 20 until I was 21. 
and then had an opportunity to change more people, places, and things. And this was the time when my mom was like, Dylan, if you can do this this time and just not do dope, you can live with me. You can smoke weed legally, and you can drink alcohol legally. You're 21. You're going to be fine. Can you do that? I was like, yes, ma'am. Um, <laughs> I did that. I did it for 32 days, and I remember that because I withdrawed for 32 days in my mother's apartment. Um, I was doing about two grams a day here in Austin for a solid, like, six to eight months. I had her house for, like, three months because she was already gone and she was <coughs> waiting to sell the house. So I was just running amok. Um, so I moved up there, cold turkey, withdrawed, and I remember the mental obsession was just like, dude, you've got to smoke weed and drink alcohol until you fall asleep. Um, and that didn't work. Like, I didn't sleep for, like, 32 days. I think I got, like, maybe five hours of sleep total. Um, it was brutal. And that I thought was going to be the time, but for me to finally make a change, it wasn't. Um, I remember hashtagging junkie fam on Instagram and found this girl. And my whole, like, my reservation, not my reservation, my, uh, my moral, my philosophical and moral conviction was I am never going to show another person in this world how to shoot dope. Right? And this woman comes into my life and she can get what I, what I need to be okay. And I show her how to. Um, because I know that I need to show her so that I can then get her to continue to come back. Um, not consciously, but after doing the 12 steps and going through my fifth step, I realized like that's what I was doing. Um, I was keeping people around me to keep them sick so that I can continue to do what I needed to do. Um, so I remember, oh man, I'm wondering if I should tell him. Um, yeah, fuck judgment. So I think I think the only person that knows this is Devin. Um, so or I guess a couple other people in this world, but uh, I'm just letting everything go tonight. Um, I was tw- yeah, I was 22 years old. Came back to Austin. And my mom kicked me out of her house again in Seattle. And I came back to Austin, lived with my grandma, and um, I asked for help. I don't know what happened. I I remember waking up and there was cuts and bruises and scrapes all over me and like thorns from running in the bushes apparently and. I woke up and I called like one of my old drug counselors that I was seeing when I was 18 and asked for help. And then my mom's on the phone. She gets me, I get over to my dad's who was living in Austin and um, I get over there. I still have heroin in my pocket, but I left my rigs in the closet. And I see my father, like I just woke up and I see my father coming out of the closet and he's got all my needles and he's like, dude, what are you doing, man? And I was like, I'm not doing anything, man. <laughs> what you're talking about? <laughs> and I fell back asleep, and I woke up, and I was like really sad because he took my rigs, and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do now to get high. I have like a half gram of heroin left, and I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Um, so what I did do with it was I like looked up some shit on the web, and like the best route possible was to put it up your butt, and so uh, that was the last time I ever did heroin. Um, yep, the last time. That was the last way I got high because three days later, I was in my aunt's house detoxing, waiting to go. To, uh, I went to treatment out in Wimmerly, went to Nova. Um, Nova Scotia. And, um, dude, it fucking, like... <clears throat> When I got there, it was one of those things that, like, you know, I've had so many first-step experiences in my life that it should have it should have clicked a long time ago. But I feel like in this world, everything happens for a reason. Um, and when I finally got there, I mean, I was just beat up from the feet up. I had no idea as to, like, why I was doing the things that I was doing. 
Um, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I was going. I was just living aimlessly and finding people to change the way I feel and drugs to change the way I feel. And I never made a, a, a solid connection with anybody in this world. I was just out and about, like, just trying to make it by. And I, I wasn't okay with that. I knew that there was more for me to achieve and my I had potential. I just didn't know how to, to get to a place of, like, being okay. Um, so I remember when I got to treatment, I was, like, I was really scared and I was really confused as to, for one, how I got there and, two, what I was going to do when I was there. Um, I was presented with the 12 steps and, uh, like, yeah, dude, I got down with like, I, I admitted that I was powerless over alcohol and that like my life has become unmanageable. But for <coughs> me, that means like honestly feeling like I am so dead on the inside that I don't care what it is in this world that I have to do to, to get right, man. So whatever you tell me I need to do to do so, like I am willing to do that, um, and, like, you'll hear people people that come in and, like, bro, chop off my big toe to get sober. I'm like, then you can't fucking walk. Um, but it's, like, I was at the point where it's, like, no matter what action you told me to take, I was going to do it. Because um, I was fucking hopeless, man. Um, and so what that ended up look like for me was is just finally giving up. Um, and I believe at any point in time in this world, like, you're going to give up if it's enough and you're going to be the only person who knows when it's enough. Um, and I just needed to start with that. And, uh, I've been very coherent as to the things that I was doing in this world. And I have very good memory as to what I did. Um, and I don't forget a lot of things. So when this shit came up for me, it was, um, cause I do time to create some new fucking memories that are good. Um, and man, like I met a lot of people that were there that just loved me for for who I was becoming, not for what I had to identify myself with, was which was like how much alcohol I had, how much Xanax I had, how much heroin I had, how much weed I had. It was like, dude, I had nothing at all. I had like the clothes that I brought and that was it. I came in there with no phone, no money, no car. Um, and um, I worked all 12 steps and had a spiritual result. A spiritual, a spiritual awakening <coughs> as a result of the 12 steps. And uh, I honestly just did a fifth step last Saturday with my sponsor. Um, it's the third one that I've done since I've been sober in three years. Um, and, um, and I wish I could continue to like, speak on how much my life has changed since. So I'm just going to touch on some like pretty... Um, profound experiences that I've had since I've been sober. Um, I lived in sober living with this man right here and uh, lived in sober living for nine months. I, I was in treatment for three months, got out and was directed to, to live in sober living for nine months. And if anybody's in sober living or going to sober living, like my experience is, is go there and, and use it as a um, way to grow closer towards God. Right, like as I, I went through sober living, a lot of people are just going in there to to get in and to get out. Um, how can I help the next brother that is there and have an experience doing so? How can I really work the twelve steps in life and show these spiritual principles in all my affairs? Um, I remember staying up until like three or four o'clock in the morning with with the brothers there and like helping them through whatever they were struggling with, and vice versa. Um, 
being part of a home group and a service commitment. Um, staying on all three sides of the triangle was huge for me. Becoming a sponsor was incredibly huge for me. I didn't really think that I was ever going to be able to sponsor people at the very <coughs> beginning because I was like, that sounds fucking ridiculous. I don't know how you can even do such a thing. And um, truth be told, man, like it, it's just it takes time and it takes me continuing to be honest with others and learn about myself. Um, I've learned over the past that I am an honest person. I have hope. I have faith. I have courage. I have integrity. Um, my willingness is, like it says, the only thing that is indispensable in this program. Um, and I trust something greater than myself. Uh, I have trust issues com due to all the abandonment that I've had in life. I, I have trust issues due to me not being able to trust myself. Well, like today, I don't have to trust myself. Today, I give my trust to God, and I ask God for the right action, and then I go and I do it. Um, is that easy to do? Not at all. Um, none whatsoever. I remember last night, I was driving home, and my grandma calls me. She's like, Dylan, I need to go to the dentist tomorrow at 11 in the morning. And I'm like, fuck, I don't want to do that at all. <laughs> at all. And, uh, like, I was saying this in my head while I'm talking to her. And I'm like, dude, what is going on right now, bro? Like, you've got to, like, your grandma was the one that you fucking stole from and were shooting dope in her spare bedroom. Um... Like, you were the one who forged her checks in her name. Like, what do you mean? So I got to, like, draw back. And I was like, okay, cool, Grandma. What time do you want me to be there? And so, like, today I went and I took my grandma to the dentist and sat with her for a whole hour and a half. And uh, she's, like, the loudest person in the waiting room. And it's, like, so awkward but cute. And I'm like, yeah, I like this. This is cool. Yeah. But I guess for me, man, like, being in the now it always felt foreign to me. I always felt like I was waiting to get out of that moment. Um, but I don't have to do that anymore. Today I really get to like enjoy the moment and sit down, look somebody eye to eye and feel what they're feeling and feel okay talking <coughs> to them. Um, and having the mental obsession removed after working the 12 steps, man, like I haven't had to think about drinking or drugging in the past three years. Like, I'd be lying to you right now if I told you that, like, I, I haven't thought about using. I've, I've not had the mental obsession in three years, but, like, the thought crosses and the first step comes up um, every single time. Like, I remember damn sure what it used to feel like, what it used to smell like, and what was around me when I was using. It was nothing. Today I have a very abundant life, and I am I am astonished as to what is in my <coughs> life today. Um, it's funny because I always used to think, like, man, I just want a normal life. You know, and I've got like the most normal life today, dude. I go to work from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. Um, I get to work with a bunch of men outside of this deal and um, see them grow and grow and grow. And it's just like, that's all God. Um, my mom trusts me now. I just went to Boston <coughs> two, three weeks ago for a whole week and it was paid for. I had PTO. It's the first time in my life I've ever been able to do that. Um, I now have a house with this man right here. We have a four-bedroom home. And, like, um, God removed people out of my life for a certain reason at a certain time in my sobriety for me to grow closer towards others. Um, my experience is I cannot be blind to that fact. Um, the, when I become blind to that fact, I am then drawing further away from God. Um, I've been fully aware as to, like, what God has put in my life 
in front of my life today and who is in front of my life today. And um, being able to see that and be grateful for it is a whole other experience. Um, Like right now I have complete gratitude. And uh, gratitude is something that is that is fucking amazing, but it is fucking scary when it goes away. Um, when those bedevilments on 52 come back up while you're sober, you're like, what is going on in this world? Why does this feel like this is happening to me again? Right? <coughs> Probably because I'm doing things on my own will that are causing these things to happen to me. Um, I'm going to finish with this. As I let go and let God, like things happen for me instead of <coughs> to me. Um, how do I do that? I take simple action. Um, I'm not going to lie to you right now and tell you that I'm the best at doing my nightlies, but uh, it is a practice that I use because it is a discipline of this program, and I try to meet them at least four to three to four times a week <laughs> if I'm good. Um, but um, within like this past year, the biggest thing that I've learned is continuing to pour my heart out into the spirit of the universe and stay daily disciplined in this deal, and no matter what answer I get in life, I'm going to be okay with um, no matter if I got broken up with this woman that I thought I loved and was in a relationship with for about two years and then um, moved out, got moved into a house with these dudes that I loved to death and wouldn't trade for anything in the world and um, found out that she is pregnant with another man and um, is going to either <coughs> tell me whose it is or never and then get an abortion Um I learned that, like, no matter what, I have to continue to stay diligent in this deal, stay disciplined, trust God, and help others. And no matter what answer I get, I'm going to be okay. Um, And that has more or less revolutionized my spiritual awakening in this go-around and gave me more trust in God. Um, Because for a little while, man, for about six to seven months, I feel like everything was happening to me. You know, like things were just happening and I had no control over him. Well, guess what, Dylan? First step, dog. You know, like <laughs> I've lost all power to choose today. And the day that I forget that, um, I'm fucked. So, uh, 